0: Luke chapter number seven, and we're going to begin reading in verse number one. This passage of scripture, I'll have you stand in just a moment. I, I tell you, I just really enjoyed it. I just, uh, it, there are some passages that you're familiar with that just bring a, for lack of a better term, a great return on investment, if you want to use that term. And I just kept reading it over and over and just in awe of what was the little nuances and, and the things that... Uh, The Lord was uh, teaching through this little passage of Scripture. And so if you'll uh, stand with verse number 1 of Luke chapter number 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now let me stop. He just finished the sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Verse number 2. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, The centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, Do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Lord, I thank you for this simple little sketch in the life of Jesus' earthly ministry, his ministry in Galilee. Uh, just packed with so much. I pray that your Holy Spirit will take your word and apply it to hearts. And uh, Lord, this is definitely a salvation passage. And I pray that you'll work um, as you see fit in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Being the son of God and the Lord of the universe, Jesus' word carries authority. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Jesus' word carries authority. We, we have seen that, that Jesus' uh, authority is a frequent theme in Luke's gospel. For example, in Luke chapter 4 and verse number 32, it says, And they were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because his word possessed authority. In verse number 36 of the same chapter, it says, And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And so he taught with authority. He taught differently than the rabbis. The rabbis, when they taught, they quoted other rabbis. Rabbi so-and-so, who was a student of Rabbi so-and-so, said this, and that's how they got their authority. Jesus being the son of God, his word was authoritative and they could tell that just by the way that he spoke. He had authority over the the the, the spiritual world, the 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 demons and things and he could he could ca- cause them to come out, he could cause them to go away. And in Luke chapter number 5 it says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so not only does Jesus' word carry authority when he teaches, and it carries authority when he casts out demons, and it carries authority when he heals people, he said that my word has authority to forgive sins. Isn't that wonderful? That is awesome. That is incredible that we serve the Savior who has the authority with just a word to forgive sins, just simply asking, Lord, will you please forgive me? I confess my sin, will you save me? And he can sit in heaven and say, I will, and that transaction's done. What a wonderful blessing that is. Our passage today we're going to see that the Gentile uh, Centurion also recognized Jesus authority and so he was in a, he was in a desperate plight. Jesus had just finished the Sermon on the Mount, it was a short walk. I, I thought about throwing a picture up here, That I don't want to inundate you with pictures. But uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Mount Beatitudes is what they call it, is, is right up here. Capernaum is right down here. And down the hill takes maybe 10 minutes, possibly 15 minutes if you're taking a slow walk, to go from Mount Beatitudes down to the village of Capernaum. And Luke says... And after he'd finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And so the story begins with a servant with a desperate plight. He was going to die if he did not get healed. That's pretty desperate, isn't it? Um, The servant's plight is a reminder of our own mortality. Sooner or later, His situation is one that all must face. And because we are all under God's death sentence against our sin, we will all face our own mortality. This is the need behind all our other needs, and it's also the sum of our fears, isn't it? I mean, I I fear some things, but all of us, there's an innate, uh, if we don't want to call it, Fear and aversion to death, isn't there? Um, that's why we wear our seat belts. That's, that's why we do all the different things that we do. We have an aversion to death. And um, one day, I'm going to give you a little secret. One day, we're all going to die. And unless there's some way for us to gain life after death, we will suffer without God for all of eternity. It is something that most people try to avoid thinking about, but can never escape entirely. The unavoidable reality is that someday they will have to die. Now, I, was, I spent four months in Arizona uh, with my dear wife, and I met many people and got to talk to many people about eternity. And in the clinic... Death is a constant specter, right? because everybody 's fighting almost everybody there had stage four cancer. Many of the patients were ladies, and so I would had the opportunity to go to lunch or coffee or something like that with a lot of the spouses and inevitably, I would turn the conversation to eternity and it 's an every time. Unless the person was a believer, it was an uncomfortable topic. Um, I remember a guy named Sean. Some of you told me you're still praying for Sean. Sean, um, it was so uncomfortable for him. It was so uncomfortable with a guy named Nick. But there were two guys who were there who, when we started talking about eternity, there was no discomfort whatsoever. They were believers and they knew that they had Jesus Christ to look forward to. Isn't that wonderful? But it's an uncomfortable topic. But, Ecclesiastes tells us that it's better for us to think about the day of our death than the day of our birth. And so it's 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 helpful for us. But people will pay almost anything to avoid death, won't they? Uh, we, watched, uh, we watched the family bankrupt themselves trying to uh, do things to keep uh, one of the family members alive. Jeff Bezos, who is the founder of Amazon, invested in Altos Labs, which is attempting some kind of biological reprogramming to extend lifespans. Google's uh, Sergey Brin and Larry Page were instrumental in launching a business called Calico, which is carrying out studies that may eradicate all disease. That's a pipe dream, isn't it? Um, pay, I got news for those guys, by the way. If you read Genesis chapter three, you'll learn that you're not gonna get there, okay? PayPal's Peter Thiel is a big supporter of the Methuselah Mouse Prize Foundation, which means to dramatically improve health and longevity. Another, another billionaire said, if we can just get to where we live 3,000 years old, I don't know about you, I have no desire to live 3,000 years. I was telling about somebody the other day, I don't even want to live to be 90. I don't. I, I want to see Jesus, okay? But people will pay almost anything to avoid death. Death confronts all of us like nothing else does. You know what it does? It exposes our insignificance, doesn't it? No matter how strong you are in your 20s, one day you're going to die. It exposes our weakness And it also exposes our fear, doesn't it? Um, Even when we try to face death courageously, we can never overcome it because all of us one day will receive the wages of sin. This is what the centurion servant was up against, humanity's last and greatest enemy, death. But he wasn't facing death alone. For his master loved him. Now, interestingly enough, um, around the Sea of Galilee during that day, there were three healing springs. They were, they were uh, springs that they said promoted healing. There was one uh, in what we call Tabga, which is just right near Capernaum. It's near where uh, when, when Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. In John 21, that's near where they were. There's one down in mo- near modern day Tiberias, and then across in Gadara, there were three. All three of these healing centers. Had, had pagan um, uh, worship of Asclepius, you know what Asclepius is, the, the snake on the pole that we use today for medical treatment, and the, the, the sign for medical treatment and all that. They, and people would bankrupt themselves going to these healing springs to try to get uh, better. But the centurion knew that there was something greater in Capernaum, and that was Jesus Christ. Very regularly, people spend all that they have in order to see family members healed. And the fact of the matter is, you can go to the greatest doctors in the world, you can have the best medical treatment that money can buy, and at the end of the day, Jesus is the one who heals, and no one else. We're fighting in a battle, and it's a battle against death. You, everybody's familiar with it. And both of us will freely admit, it doesn't matter how much time, how much money we spend on um, trying to heal my wife, at the end of the day, we acknowledge to God that Jesus is the one who heals, right? He is. And he does what he wants. And so verse three tells us, look at verse number three. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews asking him to come and to heal his servant. Now, this centurion was a very powerful man. For he was able to request that the Jewish leaders of the city go to Jesus on his behalf. And he sent a whole delegation of leaders from that city to Jesus. And he he asked them to heal Now there's an interesting word, that word heal is very interesting. It comes from the family of words that means salvation. And it it does, heal is a proper translation, but behind that word is the word salvation. The idea is that it means to bring somebody safely through an ordeal or, ready, to rescue someone. That's what this particular word means. And this is what the centurion was praying that Jesus would do. He had nowhere else to turn. Jesus was his only hope. And so he asked Jesus to work a saving cure that would rescue his friend from death. The centurion's plea was physical. But it points to a deeper spiritual reality, doesn't it? And it reminds us that everyone needs the saving work of Jesus Christ. Who else can deliver us from death? Who else can carry us through our last ordeal and bring us safely to the other side? The only hope for for meeting the dying and desperate need of lost humanity is life through Jesus Christ. And as we suffer uh, the sickness of sin, that sickness unto death, we should ask him to come with all the grace of his saving cure. It is amazing the grace that God will give to the dying who are in him. You see fear in some people, and others you don't. My wife just told me earlier this week, she said, you know what? If it turns out good, it's okay. And if it doesn't turn out good, it's still okay. Why is that? Because of Jesus Christ, right? Well, they said that he's worthy. So I have a question for you. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Now, the Jewish people came to Jesus. I want you to notice what they said. Uh, they said they pleaded with him earnestly. The Bible says he is worthy. That's their judgment. He's worthy to have you do this for him. Now, what what is the basis of their judgment? Keep reading with me. Look at the verse. For he loves our nation. He's the one who built for us our synagogue. These words, with these words, we begin to see the contrast between apparent worthiness and, and the actual unworthiness of a person who seems to lead a good life. Last week in my message, if you remember, I said that, that no one uh, is as good as they appear on the outside and you heartily agreed. And it's true. But this is fascinating. I studied centurions for just a little bit. Did you know that in the New Testament, every centurion that's mentioned is mentioned in a good light? These Roman soldiers, every single one Every single one is well-regarded, and every single centurion is noted in some, the way the narrative reads that they're a man of character. And this matches exactly what we know about centurions. The historian uh, Polybius said this. He said that qualifications for centurions, what they looked for in a centurion was somebody who was not somebody who just wanted to run headlong into danger. They weren't seeking danger. Um, rather, they were steady in action. They were reliable. They weren't over-anxious to rush into a fight. In other words, they were, they were willing to sit back and to try to negotiate type things. But when hard-pressed, they were ready to stand their ground and die at their posts. They were men, this is what Polybius said, they were men of fortitude and integrity. And integrity was clearly required of his centurions. And that's the man that we're talking about today, right? The elders of Israel looked at this man from a human standpoint and made a case that this man was worth helping, this Gentile man. Their proof was his character. He had a tender heart for the people in need. He was powerful he loved the Israelites, and he built their synagogue. There are still pieces of the synagogue that he paid for today. Let me show you a picture here. I want to show you something. Now, this is not a very impressive, and it's hard to see. It's washed out. It's a lot better. Don't turn around, but it's a lot better back there. But I want to show you something. There's actually two different stones. Here is black stone, and this is white stone. Now, some of you can read the sign. This is actually what the the, um, centurion built for them. That is black. It's volcanic basalt. It's a volcanic stone. That synagogue was destroyed during the Jewish rebellions. And in the, the fourth century, during the Byzantine period, the Jews rebuilt the synagogue out of this different stone. Now, here's the deal. That stone's nowhere near. Everything's volcanic around Capernaum. It came from miles and miles away. Uh, three centuries after the centurion built the one out of the stone that was black. One more picture, and this is just an interesting side note. It does nothing for the sermon, okay? But uh, no, what kind of capitals are these? might know? The Cor- I heard it, Corinthian, the Corinthian capitals. If you go into a synagogue at Capernaum, you will see all sorts of Greek mythological in uh, figures and characters and inscriptions and symbols in the synagogue, the Jewish people that built the synagogue in the third century were not devout. They were uh, what we call syncretists: a little bit of God, a little bit of this, a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of that, and you see it all through Israel. But anyway, the the, the centurion. Built their synagogue for them. He was a man of means, and he loved the people. I'm sure it was a sacrifice for him, but he did it. And so these uh, prominent social and religious uh, character leaders went to Jesus on his behalf. And now they're thinking. What are they thinking? Put yourself in their shoes. They're thinking in terms of merit. They believed that someone who lived a good life was worthy to receive a blessing. Now, admit it. That's how we think today most of the time, isn't it? We do. We do. It's just the default of human nature. Most people think that way. It's a basic presupposition of our fallen nature. We tend to think that people who do good things for others deserve to have good things um, done for them, don't we? I mean, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves, right? No, that's not in the Bible. I'm joking with you, okay? That's just the way that we think. Surely somebody like the centurion who supports the church and gives money to charity can expect Jesus to answer his prayer for healing. Some people, to their um, eternal damnation, apply the same logic to life after death. They believe that they just do good enough they will be entitled to heaven. Sean, the guy that I was witnessing to out in um, Mesa, that's what he believed. He said, oh, you know, I, I think that if I'm pretty much a good person, and so as long as my good works are, are really good and I don't do too many bad things, I should be all right. That's just the default of human nature. And these people hope that, they, that the good that they do will outweigh the bad and that God will receive them on the basis of what they've done. And so if good works could ever earn God's favor for anyone, then this centurion deserved it, didn't he? I mean, honestly, if good works earn God's favor, then he deserved to have Jesus come and heal his servant. He had the credentials anyone could ever ask for, but, but unfortunately, this is not how God operates. In our pride, we believe that we can do good enough for God. But who is ever good enough for God? The Bible says that salvation is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one will boast. Because if we got to heaven by our own merit, what would we do? We would boast, brag about it. Salvation has to be the gift of God because otherwise we take all the credit ourselves. And beyond that, God's standard is perfect holiness. It's it's not enough to make friends with the people of God. It's not enough to go to church. It's not enough to give money to Christian causes or get involved in ministry. What God requires in order for someone to get to heaven is absolute perfect righteousness. By that standard then, no one is worthy, no one, except Jesus Christ. Therefore, if God is to help us, it will, never, it will never be because of our own merit, but only because of his mercy. And that brings us to the centurion. Worthy or not, the Jesus had compassion and decided to help the centurion by healing his servant. And so he set off across town uh, with the elders to find a centurion. And this is what we see all the way through the Gospels. Jesus reaching out to help people in desperate need. People just like us. Jesus is able and willing to help us. The desire of his saving heart is to rescue people from the sickness of sin and eternal death. And so verse number six Everybody look at verse number six. Stunning turn of events. Just stunning. Look at verse number six with me. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends and said, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy. I'm not even worthy for you to come to my house. Now, what did the Jewish leaders just say? Hey, if anybody's worthy, this guy is. And he sent his friends to say, I am not worthy. And we have here the absolute contrast between apparent worthiness and actual unworthiness of the man who seems to lead a good life. Everyone else thought the centurion deserved whatever help he needed. He was a good man. He cared for his servants. He gave a lot of money to the local congregation. Surely such a man, it was entitled to have some kind of special consideration, Right? But, but by the grace of God, the centurion saw himself as he really was. He knew. He knew he was not worthy at all. Not compared to Jesus. He was so unworthy, he said, I I'm not even deserving to be under the same roof as you, Jesus. Now, what is going on? He realized that he himself was unworthy. And what made him unworthy, and this is important, Everybody get this. What made him unworthy was the worthiness of Jesus Christ. He compared himself to the eternal, well, he compared himself to Jesus Christ. Let's put it that way. Somehow, he could see that Jesus was far more than a traveling rabbi, some famous healer. Now, the question is how do you see Jesus? How do you see yourself? the two questions are connected. Because when we see Jesus as he really is in all his splendor, we see our true spiritual need. The first and most important thing that we need to see about ourselves is that we are sinners in desperate need of God's grace. And when we see ourselves as we really are, the way God sees us, In all the unworthiness of our sin, we see the supreme worthiness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the worthy Son of God. He is the beginning and the end. Isn't that what he says? I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the creator of the universe. I was driving, um, uh, I was actually riding, I should say, through uh, the, the Shenandoah National Park on Friday for a little bit, just looking at the creation, and I was sitting there thinking to myself, God created this with just a word, just a word, he created it. Amazing, isn't it? He's the creator of the universe, the one by whom and for whom all things were made. Since he made us, he owns us. He's the mighty and supreme ruler of heaven and earth. He's the king of kings, Lord of lords. He's the holy lamb of God who was slain for the sins on the cross, who raised from the dead for our justification and who now deserves all honor and blessing and glory and power. And he's sitting at the right hand of God, sitting, not pacing back and forth, not worrying about the direction our nation's going, not worried about the economy or any of that other stuff. He's sitting on the throne and he's controlling all things by his great might. And while he's doing that, a multitude of heavenly creatures and a multitude of his saints are now around the throne saying, worthy are you of all honor and grace and, and glory and you name it, they're saying it. And if you're in Christ one day, you'll be saying it too. Meanwhile, he'll be sitting there controlling everything in the world. Stunning, isn't it? If that's Jesus, then who are we? <laughs> it's not going to be quite as good, just to let you know. We're needy sinners. We are corrupt to the core. We're in the need of the grace of God every day. And we must never forget our unworthiness. We must never forget the unworthiness of our sinful nature, the unrighteousness of the sins that we commit against God. Alexander White Uh, the preacher from England said this, Scotland. He said, the true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. Your nose must be attentive to the cesspool that's inside. We get used to it though, don't we? I grew up in Illinois, farm country, And I also grew up around the Amish. I don't know if you knew that or not. I did. I worked for the Amish people from time to time. And Amish people would go to the barn and work, and then they would go to town, the men would, and go into stores. If your nose was not accustomed to the smell, when you walked in, you would say to yourself, you could see people that were from out of town coming to see the Amish. <laughs> What's that smell? And um, they weren't accustomed to it, and they realized that here's this Amish person who had been in the barn. Guess what? The guy that had been in the barn, he didn't smell it. Everything was normal for him. And we need to be, make sure in our Christian lives that we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and our nose sniffing out the cesspool that's inside our hearts. Because until we pass to the other side, it will be a constant fight against flesh and blood, won't it? Now, in today's culture, people are taught that they're essentially good. And so, if, if somebody is taught that, what I am saying sounds like poisonous pessimism, doesn't it? Why are you up there telling people they're so bad? Because that's what the Bible says. To teach children and to teach people that inside they are essentially good is literally rebellion against the Word of God, whether they know it or not. If we are proud of who we are and what we have accomplished, then we can never be saved. That's biblical. 1 Peter chapter 5 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace, saving grace to the humble. But God also gives grace. And so when we admit that we do not even deserve to be saved, we are ready to receive God's mercy in Christ and we're ready to say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm not even worthy to come into your presence. But I believe the promise of your word that in the blood of your cross that is enough. And it's great and it's grace for me. And there's far more to salvation than just seeing our own unworthiness. That's one part. The second part is we need true faith in Jesus Christ. And the centurion had that faith as well. Look at verses seven and eight. He believed Jesus had the power to save. He said, Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. And, one, and so he, uh, he's explaining to Jesus, look, I'm not worthy because I can see your authority. And one of the reasons that the centurion had this faith is that he knew how authority operates. As an officer in the Roman army, he was used to giving orders and having them obeyed. And the reason that soldiers carried out his commands is because his commands carried out the weight of the Roman government, the Roman army, the general. That's the authority that he was under. He he was a man, he said, set under authority. Today, we would say he's a man in authority. But as a Roman soldier, the centurion had a deeper understanding of how authority operates. Why did soldiers carry out his orders? Because he had military authority. But where did that authority come from? It came from that command structure in the Roman army. The centurion derived his authority from his superior officers who derived their authority from their superior officers going all the way up to Caesar. So when the centurion gave an order, it was backed by Caesar. He was in authority because he was under authority. And somehow somehow Jesus he knew that Jesus had the same kind of authority. Now he may not have known that Jesus was the, was God the Son. Presumably, he could not define the doctrine of the Trinity or explain how the words of the Son were backed by full authority of the Father. But the centurion knew that Jesus had power over the physical needs of the human body, and as far as he was concerned, the miracles of Jesus proved that he spoke with almighty authority, and all Jesus had to do was say the word, and his wish was creation's command. And when Jesus heard the confidence the centurion had in the authority of his word, He was totally amazed. Did you know there's only two times in the Gospels where Jesus expressed amazement? The first was when his family and friends rejected him at Nazareth. Scripture says he marveled because of their unbelief. That's Mark 6.6. And this time it's not unbelief. Luke 7.9 says when Jesus heard these things... He marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And here's where we reach the crux. It was because of the man's humble faith that Jesus healed his servant. Luke assures us that when those who had uh, went to Jesus returned to the house, they found the servant well. All Jesus had to do was say a single word and the man's health was restored. It was one of the greatest miracles that Jesus ever performed. He didn't even go see the man. He just said the word at the distance. But by the time everybody got back and and Capernaum is very small, very small. By the time everybody got back, everyone went home, the servant was fully recovered. And listen, by the same word, that created the universe out of nothing. That same word brings sinners from darkness to light. Not wonderful. I'm looking at him. Jesus delivered the centurion servant from death. He did this because the centurion trusted his power to heal. This serves as an example of a basic principle of our own salvation. We will not be healed by the worthiness of our works, but only by the trust of our faith, believing the Word of Christ brings salvation. We will not be healed of the consequences of sin, but only through the trust in Christ. Luke tells us that at the end of this conversation, With the centurion's final messenger, Jesus turned and spoke to the crowd. This simple, profound gesture had significance for the people standing there because it was an invitation. It was an invitation for them to trust in him. Look at what he said. He said, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. He was challenging the people there to put their faith and trust in him. They too had heard about Jesus. They knew that he had the power to heal, and now they were invited to believe his word. And Jesus turns to us with the same invitation. The story reminds us of our lost and desperate condition as dying sinners, doesn't it? The physical reflects the spiritual. We're not worthy of Christ either, but the story also shows us how Jesus has the power of God to salvation. And he can give whatever healing we need, whatever comfort in our grief, whatever forgiveness of our sin, whatever hope for our future, and simply by saying the word, simply by saying the word, he does it. And all we have to do is trust in Jesus Christ as the centurion trusted with simple and confident faith. My question is, have you placed simple, confident faith in the Savior of the world? Lord, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful story. I had so much fun this week thinking about this passage, Lord. What a blessing it is. How exciting is it to see the compassion of our Savior, to see the power and authority of our Savior, to see the unworthiness that we have of salvation. All of these things wrapped up in 10 little verses. Lord, I pray a number of things today. First of all, anyone who is not in Christ, people who have not believed in Christ for salvation, maybe some actually think that they're saved and they're really not. I pray, Lord, that the grace of God will visit them this day. Today will be their day of salvation. Lord, for those of us who are saved, I pray that we will constantly remind ourselves of our own unworthiness. And and therefore, that we will check our hearts and be repenting of sin and turning to Christ. And secondly, I pray that we will focus on the worthiness of Christ. By his great power, he created the world with a word. And by his great power, he saves us with a word. May our focus, may our joy, may our satisfaction, may the desires of our heart be day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, turned to our worthy and almighty Savior. In his name we pray, amen.